0: Hey there, everyone. It's John. Just wanted to draw your attention to something that I'm working on with Mercy Quay. She's the Sightlines op-ed contributor to the Connecticut Mirror. A big thinker, fascinating person, and someone I've been wanting to work with for a long time. So, Harriet Jones, my old colleague from WNPR, uh, and I work together with Mercy on a new podcast called Untold. And we want to give you a little bit of a sneak preview. This first season of our podcast is all about recovery in many forms, not just recovery from the pandemic. So I want you to give a listen, if you would. And if you haven't yet subscribed, you can search for this podcast at Untold CT Mirror. It's just about anywhere you get your podcasts. All right, thanks so much, and take a listen.
1: I'd like to do something. Sure. I'm just gonna do a I'm, and you hit me with the I'm. Mm -hmm. okay. (laughs) Cool, great. (laughs) So I'm black. I'm white. I'm a woman. I'm a man. I'm a millennial.
0: I'm a Gen Xer.
1: Um, I'm queer. I'm straight. What else do we got?
0: You're a snappy dresser. Uh, I'm I
1: pretty mean, not cool. So much. <laughs> I'm like, you have a nice haircut. I don't know. Really... You've got a great beard. <laughs> I I'm do like... have a, I
0: do have a good and beard. And
1: unfortunately my great, my beard is not growing <laughs> in no matter how hard I try. Um, I'm 55. Five. <laughs>
0: I'm six four.
1: He's like a foot taller than I'm like, me. I'm like a,
0: I'm like a, almost a full foot taller than you. Are.
1: Which which if folks are looking at the cover art for yeah. this podcast, you would not <laughs> guess. A, quite a bit of editing had to go into this. This is Untold, the latest news and culture podcast from the Connecticut Mirror we've given ourselves three simple charges. Challenge assumptions, seek understanding, and leave nothing untold. I'm Mercy Quay.
0: And I'm John Dankosky. Together we'll set out to trace how each of us is a bit more alike than our assumptions make us think. When we commit to following every thread to reach a deep understanding, it becomes clear that our differences and disagreements may be the result of the things we left untold. So can I ask you another sure question please. Yeah so the title of the podcast is untold yeah. so why is it called untold? like what are we trying to do?
1: <laughs> what are we trying to do? there was this I, I'm, I'd like to take our listeners on a bit of a journey a bit of a journey yeah there were conversations after conversations about you know, what do we want to achieve in in a podcast between someone like you and someone like me? What stands between us, right? Mm. What are the things that might be barriers to understanding? I am a black woman who was uh, raised, born, raised, and stayed in New Haven. Um, and uh, one of the things that I say is, uh, you know, the, the only thing that makes me different from my peers who went to jail is I went to college, mm. right? So that's something as a first step, right? That yep. makes me different from you in that you are.
0: Yeah, I am a, I'm a white man. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, I've had an enormous amount of privilege in my life.
2: Mm.
0: Like, not as much privilege as, as a small number of people, but way more privilege than the biggest chunk of, of society. Mm. And for that, I, I count my blessings. Um, but it's, it requires, I think, a bit of self-reflection. Yeah. That's something I'm seeking, right? A bit of understanding about the reality yeah, of the privilege.
1: I, I think it, it's it's interesting because the things that bring us to this room are actually the things that make us similar. We met um, in 2013, thir-
0: uh, probably, um, yeah.
1: when I was covering. Winstead, Connecticut, um uh, for the Torrington Register Citizen and you, as you are now, we're living in uh Winchester, Winstead, Connecticut.
0: Yep, yep. I'm a Winstead Winstead resident and when I found out that that you, a Quinnipiac grad, were, were assigned to cover my strange little town, I thought, My goodness, what a gig that <laughs> that must be.
1: <laughs> Why do we get to talk about this?
0: That's a that's a really good question. I mean, You know, anybody can make a podcast these days. (laughs) But um, I think that we've all had to confront the idea that we have to recover from something because of this pandemic. When I say all, I mean all 300-some million people in America have had to recover in some way. But it has made me certainly think, and I think the two of us think about All the ways in which people are constantly having to recover from things, from setbacks, from things that they felt like they've lost, things that they felt have been taken away from them, whether or not it has to do with their freedom, if you're uh, part of the incarceration system, especially starting at a very young age, if if it has to do with your health because you've mm-hmm. uh, encountered opioids or, or some other uh, drug use, uh, if it's your education, if it's been stolen from you because you weren't able to attend school or because it's so prohibitively expensive that it's affected the, the rest of your life. I mean, so many people are in recovery right now, mm-hmm. but it's only this moment in which the entire nation's in recovery that I think we're really starting to think about what that word means and how it's like, oh, oh, that's what it was like all that time for, for all those other people who are in recovery from stuff. I guess I should probably, I don't know, cut them a little slack.
1: And I, I I think that, you know, our perspectives are exactly that. I think we're sitting in two different chairs metaphorically and somehow have been able to see eye to eye on a number of issues. And that shouldn't go to say that, you know, we're right because we agree, But there's something to be said about examining these issues from the perspectives that we bring, from the, right, like the cultural context, the social context from, you know, from which we've come up in the world um, and bringing that all to the table to really dissect what it means to recover and what it means to challenge assumptions, seek understanding and leave nothing untold.
0: Now, throughout the season, we're going to explore different ways in which we need recovery in education, in the opioid crisis, and in returning from incarceration. This episode, though, the economy. Whose recovery is this anyway? The pandemic shutdowns threw tens of thousands of people out of work in our state. Businesses had to close their doors. Essential workers risked their health for low wages and non-existent benefits. Now, two years later, house prices have surged. Businesses are back open, and there seem to be plenty of jobs So we should be feeling pretty good, right? But the inequalities that existed in Connecticut, well before the pandemic, were only worsened by COVID.
1: Coming up, reporter Ryan Martins visits with small business owners around the state to hear how their recovery is going.
0: I cried many
3: nights. And honestly, I told my husband, we may have to close down. We put our all into this. We struggle, and and I'm wondering where is our help coming from? We have no help.
0: And we'll invite Janae Woods Weber into the studio to explore the idea of recovery for all. Until the
1: rising tide lifts all boats. If you have a boat. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then some boats will be able to, you know, sail away on their 75-foot yacht. I have no idea what the size of boats are. <laughs> Let me just say that. I don't know if 75. Untold is brought to you in part by Leadership Greater Hartford's webinar series, Leading in the New Now. It's designed to support community leaders who are navigating emerging and established trends, and it features some of the best leadership minds locally and nationally. Learn more at
0: leadershipgh.org. Untold is also sponsored by UConn's School of Public Policy, a leader in public policy, public management, nonprofit management, and survey research education.
1: One of the strangest effects of the pandemic has been the housing boom that has swept Connecticut. And this is after years of languishing house prices. So all of that has felt pretty good if you already own a home.
0: But if you want to get on the ladder, stop renting, start building some equity, it's put that much further out of reach for many people in the state. It's also made life a lot harder for organizations that are trying to tackle the affordable housing crisis, like Habitat for Humanity.
4: We really started framing like... Three weeks ago so it goes up pretty quick on the framing end of things i'm kevin moore i'm the director of construction with habitat for humanity uh coastal fairfield county so we're at 75 and 79 goodwin place in stratford this is a uh, new construction two-family home
5: a couple years ago i experienced a house fire um and then after that I was re- displaced for a little while and then my landlord ended up finding us home for me and my daughters which was fine but the living conditions were horrible My name is Cindy George. I'm originally from Stanford, but I've been living in Bridgeport for the last 10 years. I'm a single mother of two. I've always wanted to become a homeowner. Actually, before the fire happened, I had already been saving to put towards a home. To become a first time homebuyer with not one, not much experience, not much finances saved up, not ever learning or I wasn't brought up knowing how to build credit. Credit wasn't a thing that was discussed in my home. Yeah, with COVID now, you know, everything's shut down and my two toddlers ended up being home. Homeschooling became kind of crazy on top of working from home. And now they're home. They're eating all the time. So it's electricity bills are higher. The food expense is higher. So having to budget, finance and still keep a happy face on and take care of my kids was one challenge in itself. And in the middle of COVID, my mom actually had a stroke. Now my mother has to live with me. So my living
4: situation had to change as well.
5: It's been a lot.
4: It's, it's hard not to be paying over 30% of your monthly income in rent in Fairfield County. And particularly now, with the economy as it is, right? rising costs for homeowners, the need is greater than it's ever been for affordable housing. And it's costing us more than ever to build them. Pre-pandemic, we were buying lots in Bridgeport for ten dollars to $20,000 for a, a vacant building lot. Post-pandemic, there, those lots largely don't exist. The lots that do exist are super expensive. You know, you, some of those same lots are going for like $80,000 a lot. There was huge growth in cost of building materials. You know, we saw like on a lot of items, like up to 300% increases. That's largely leveled off, but kind of leveled off at about 20% higher cost than, than pre-pandemic levels.
2: I just have a passion around home ownership. I think it's just a critical part of your life. It's a good way to build an estate. My name is Greg Strube. I retired halfway through 2020. Uh, right after retiring, came to Habitat. I've worked two days a week ever since that first week. I don't know how kids do it without getting a little help from their parents. Maybe you have a, a school loan or two and you're in an entry-level position. Squirreling away enough for a down payment has is, is got to be very difficult. So if, if this is making it easier for a, a family to, to get that first head start, then that's great.
0: I read the definition please, of the word recovery please to you.
1: and I think that that actually will kind of give us a nice betting for yeah, this season yeah
0: so, so so here's the word the word is recovery and definition one is a return to a normal state of health mind or strength and number two the number two definition is the action or process of regaining possession or control of something stolen or lost. Mm-hmm. How do those re- how do those <laughs> resonate with you? Well,
1: I was going to ask you which of these two feels uh right for what we're doing here. Uh, so f- the regaming mm-hmm. and the return for me are the pieces that feel most um inaccessible. Mm. Maybe it does not appropriately apply to a lot of the topics we're talking about.
5: Mm.
1: Right. Um, and I think it's one of the ways that we've been talking about recovery from the pandemic that, you know, a return to normal without an interrogation of what normal has been with, for so many people.
0: The, and that's that's the word that sticks out to me, right? Mm-hmm. The, the word doing a lot of work in there, as it were, is, is normal. Yep. Return to a normal state of who's normal mm-hmm. and what exactly is normal. And, and you can... You can go pretty deep into try to figure out what normal is. Normal for any individual? Right. Normal based on societal understanding of what normal is? Exactly.
1: Right. And I think that if we were to think about it in the sense of normal for society society standing, um, this second definition to regain possession or control of something lost or stolen. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is fantastic. I think what we're thinking about right now is normal can look like uh, someone living in a state of loss, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Living in a complete, I mean, and some of the people that we'll be talking to in this show and certainly in this episode um, will dive into what it means to lose, right and in our society what it means to have something stolen particularly when we're thinking about like the economy what has been mm-hmm. stolen from us covid what has been stolen from us there who has been stolen from us yeah
0: but I, I think when you say stolen though you it it assumes that there was you know possession in the first place a rightful ownership and that's and i think stolen connotes that that someone is is actively taking it from you has 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 organized an effort to take this thing away from you and it's and and you need to seek restitution in some way right because That's the thing's been taken
1: yeah what do you do? You what about if there was a bit more of a passive subject there? If it wasn't that someone has stolen mm. something, but right, um, in fact, uh, the situation robbed us of X, Y, and Z, right? Um, and because of that, I think that rightful possession, rightful ownership, is still um, implied there. But there's a sense of um, you know a premature loss in mm. stolen, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, also here we were talking about regaining possession or control of something stolen or lost. I mean, I, I think a lot of a lot of people in society sort of believe they want to get something mm-hmm. that maybe they've never been able to have. Right. That, that that's that is both aspirational yeah. in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like I want to I want to have something that others have, but that I haven't been able to get. But then there's also I think.
4: You know, a sense sometimes,
0: you know, there's probably some people who feel pretty entitled to things that Mm. they've always had.
1: Right. And, I mean, this is – we're going to open up a big box here because that's what the American dream conditions us to think, that there is something that is yours out there as long as you work hard enough. Right? Uh. And – to some degree, you know, the amount of work that indiv- certain individuals have to put in to obtain that thing that they've been promised, mm-hmm. that's where you see disparities, right? The amount of work that you have to put in in order to uh, achieve that American dream.
0: Yeah, I, I think this this first episode, this, this episode about the economy and recovery from the COVID pandemic, th- we really do talk a lot about this, this idea of working hard, but honestly, it's been a through line in a whole lot of these conversations. Mm-hmm there are a lot of people who are working really really hard to get back those things yeah. that they lost and society by and large doesn't always acknowledge that hard work mm-hmm. you know s- some people's hard work gets acknowledged very clearly in yeah. society and other people other people not so much
1: and it feels like we're sort of grading on a on a bell curve right yeah. it's like <laughs> <laughs> right we are grading on all right who's uh, which, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed person's uh, efforts can set our like measure for what hard work is, and then we'll norm, norm the expectations of hard work after that, when the reality is, and some of the folks that we've spoken to here, right, um, particularly the entire slate of interviews, mm-hmm. um, in-studio interviews for season one, all women of color and some of the some of the things that you'll hear them say is right that meet that mediocre white male um uh you know uh, effort of of uh, you know achievement that is wildly accepted is also wildly surpassed by many people of color, in particular Black women, who in 2017 were recognized as the highest educated demographic by gender and race, right? And so we see the fruits of certain people's efforts being, you know, lauded and lifted up to the top, while other people's efforts are sort of, you know, relegated to some other corner, um, or perhaps even looked at as no, but you have to do that. That that is your rightful place in mm-hmm. society. You're listening to Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. I'm Mercy Quay.
0: And I'm John Dankoski.
1: Many businesses got clobbered by the pandemic shutdowns of 2020. And after that came supply chain issues, the expense of PPE, and anxious folks throughout the nation waiting to see if they'd qualify for federal support. Ryan Martins has been finding out if those effects still linger here in Connecticut.
6: What do used cars, cryptocurrency, sweatpants, and a gourmet popcorn truck have in common? I'm going to take you on a journey around Connecticut to meet four very different entrepreneurs who've all been hustling through COVID. First stop, Moosup. That's in Connecticut's quiet corner in the northeast of the state.
3: Um, We do have a repair center, which is right here.
6: If you had to buy a car within the last two years, you know the market has been turned upside down.
3: Our inventory comes from the auction. The auction prices went up. We used to pay wholesale. We are paying retail.
6: This is Aldrina Gibbs
3: Davis. I was always a fan of automobile. My father used to have antique cars, and I always was fascinated with it.
6: She established Sinclair Auto Palace here in Moosup in November of 2019. As we all went into lockdown just a few months later, she realized that finding inventory and connecting with customers was going to be a struggle. Aldrina applied for a federal paycheck protection loan, but no luck.
3: We didn't receive anything. The second one I went through, a a lender, they waited till the day that the PPP was closed to tell me, oh, you can't get it.
6: That meant she got behind in her mortgage payments, and she hasn't had capital to develop the business.
3: uh, Another garage. What happened is we needed the finance to finish fixing it up, because it needs a new roof. Ceiling needs to be done. But for now, we just store cars.
6: Now, two years into the pandemic, Aldrina is still struggling to see any light at the end of the tunnel.
3: I cried many nights. And honestly, I told my husband, we may have to close down. We put our all into this. We struggle. And, and I'm wondering, where is our help coming from? We have no help. And that's wrong.
6: Investing in a brick-and-mortar, supply-chain-dependent business was obviously tough the last two years. But some virtual businesses have fared a lot better. Next stop on our journey, New Haven.
7: Blockchain can tackle key points of friction in B2B payments that other payment rails cannot, according to CoreChain click
3: above to discover the company's thoughts. I'm RJ Herrick.
2: I'm the CTO and co-founder of Corechain Technologies.
6: Corechain specializes in streamlining business-to-business transactions using cryptocurrency. RJ and his team launched right in the middle of
2: COVID. September 2020. Yeah, most of our operations have been during the pandemic at this point, which has changed a lot of our plans on how we were going to go about uh, staffing and hiring.
6: They do have a base at a co-working space in New Haven, but mostly their small staff is remote. And in fact, by remaining virtual, CoreChain has been able to take advantage of talent elsewhere in the country.
2: We have about eight developers right now who are the core of our uh, members, one of our members of our team is in california and others in uh, new york
6: and how about financing no hard luck tales here corechain just secured more than four million dollars in seed financing from venture capital firms i'll be chilling every
8: day i'll laugh all day yep <laughs> That's, a dog. Find the right our next pandemic
6: story is right around the corner in the same city right but with a very the different business humor, so oh, it literally
8: works out like so perfectly <laughs>
6: So usually the way I start this is, uh, I know your name, but if mm-hmm. you can just tell me your name and spell it for me. Yep. All right, so Shannon Harrell. One study says 59% of Americans who have jobs that can be done remotely are now working from home to some extent. And if you're lucky enough to still be working in your sweatpants, Shannon Harrell has some to sell you. From his push clothing brand, based in New Haven.
8: Now, I used to play football, so my, my my story had nothing to do with, like, fashion at all. Um, I just was always, like, a consumer of fashion.
6: Push prides itself in breaking from the mold of fast fashion and trendy styles. It was always a side hustle for its creators and just the kind of low-margin, inventory-dependent business you might expect to be badly affected by supply chain disruptions. But in fact, when the pandemic hit and many retail businesses were closing up shop in order to quarantine, Push was able to stay afloat online.
8: So, you know, we didn't have as much overhead as people with brick and mortars. The bills weren't really weighing down on us. We just had to maintain like websites. And luckily for us, we had just got a big shipment in right before the lockdown. So we were able to actually like sustain ourselves during the lockdown
6: uh, because everyone was home and shopping online.
9: And I'ma let you sleep in that push tea. Yeah, I ain't no lover, but don't push me. Yeah.
6: Some people have one all-consuming dream for a business. Others, well, they hustle any way they can. We're heading down the coast to Bridgeport to meet the last character in our COVID journey.
8: Entrepreneurship, business ownership is in my blood.
6: Kim Bianca Williams tells me her dad was a gospel singer who started a recording business way back when.
8: Then they opened a a record store. Y'all youngins don't know much about records now. (laughs)
6: They're coming back. They're coming back.
8: They're coming back. Vinyl's coming back. You're right.
6: Mazel Records doesn't exist anymore, but as a single mother more than a decade ago, Kim developed her own business, VCL Consulting.
8: Which is training and performance improvement for both personal and professional development.
6: As Kim and VCL headed into the pandemic, she knew things were going to be tough.
8: I am a very in-your-face, got-to-touch-and-feel people kind of person. So I love being around People in the classroom, it's very difficult to gauge the experience that people are having in a small box.
6: VCL came to a halt for about six months as she retooled, adapted to a virtual environment, and reinvented her programming. Like Aldrina's car dealership, Kim Bianca didn't land a PPP loan, but she has been able to access grants from both the City of Bridgeport and the Women's Business Development Council.
8: Actually, to move into a new location. The office is gonna be located really right in the heart of the East End. And then for my side hustle business, <laughs> which is a gourmet popcorn food truck.
6: Yep, you were waiting for the popcorn truck.
8: You ever come across something that was just too good to pass up? I was searching Craigslist one day, just kind of fooling around, and I saw this, the cutest food cart at the greatest price.
6: Unlike VCL, the popcorn stand wasn't able to stay open during the pandemic.
8: That particular business shut down completely. There was no way to transition it, nothing. And not only on my end, but my supplier suffered as well.
6: Two years in, she's relicensing the truck, and she hopes to hire a part-time employee to run it for her this summer. Kim Bianca says there is one central thing that keeps her moving forward no matter what.
8: The past two years, um, for me, my faith has been everything. I said, I don't know how people make it without God in their life because we are facing such tumultuous times.
1: You're listening to Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. I'm Mercy Quay.
0: And I'm John Bankowski. Hi, I'm Bruce Putterman, publisher of the Connecticut Mirror. Our public policy reporting strengthens democracy in two ways. It informs the public about its state government, and it acts as a watchdog to hold that government accountable. For 12 years now, members like you have participated in the work of the
2: Connecticut Mirror through financial support. If you're already a Connecticut Mirror member, thank you. If you haven't yet joined in the work of the Connecticut Mirror, I encourage you to do so. After all, our high-impact reporting is free to read, but it's
0: not free to produce. Please go to ctmirror.org and click the red
2: donate button today, thank you.
9: I actually, about a month ago, I felt like, okay, this is the first time we're gonna be out of the red.
0: What was it like to survive the pandemic?
9: on a low-wage job. My name is Terrell Williams. I'm a personal care assistant. I help people uh, who have special needs or disabilities get the care that they need at home.
0: Terrell lives with his brother, Ed, in New Haven.
9: i watch you drive. No, let's dry show. OK. I think it's a noble job. I think it's one of the mo- most noble jobs we have. And it should be treated with some more respect than it is currently. When I joined the union, we were at 12 bucks an hour. We did the fight for 15, where we got everybody up to $15 an hour.
0: Things were pretty unstable for Terrell during COVID. He temporarily lost touch with two of the people he was caring for, and he had to apply for unemployment.
9: Typically, you have employment two weeks. And you hear something, you know, um, you have a response and you know that you got money coming. I remember it was um, a month and a half and I couldn't access the system. I couldn't get in touch with anybody. There was basically no help for me. Well so the first stimulus came out, and I was like, thank you, Lord, you know, because I don't know what I was going to do.
0: One saving grace about losing his livelihood, he became eligible for Medicaid. When he's working, he makes just a little too much to qualify, but not enough to afford to buy coverage.
9: I recently found out I was diabetic um, about three years ago. There was a point where I started to lose my eyesight because um, my sugar went high and I was making too much money for the state insurance. So I didn't have any insulin and I was just trying to, you know, change my eating habits to balance out.
0: Terrell says he picks and chooses when to use his insulin. If he's feeling good on a weekend, he'll skip a day. Just this month, he ran out of his supply that he'd saved from his time on Medicaid.
9: I went to go one day just to price it out. It helped me so much, I was like, you know, maybe I can just bite the bullet and pay for it out of pocket. And I went to their pharmacist and uh, he told me 600 bucks for one jar of the insulin,
0: small jar, 600 bucks. And I was like, okay, no, that's not gonna work. Losing out on wages and not being able to access employment put Terrell behind with rent and utilities and deep into debt.
9: Um, from the hole we were in, I just had to chip off whatever little I could at a time. I actually, about a month ago, I felt like, OK, this is the first time where we're going to be out of, out of the debt. Um, we're going to be out of the red or where I could feasibly see, you know, I don't have to spend everything I have to handle it.
0: You can learn more about our podcast at ctmirror.org forward slash untold. You'll find bonus content and look behind the scenes. We want to hear from you. You can email us at untold at ctmirror.org or engage with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at ctmirror. You can send us your untold stories and tell us what's happening in your community.
1: Let's jump right in. John, how are you feeling?
0: You know, I'm feeling, I guess, great. It's nice to be in our little tiny room. Cool, um, let's
1: do it. Uh, Janae, I'm just so very excited to have you in studio with us today. And um, before we get started, just give us uh, a little bit about yourself. Tell us who you are and why you're here.
7: I am Janae Woods Weber, I am the newish. Executive Director of the Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund. We advocate for under-resourced, marginalized women and girls in Connecticut, and we also advocate up at the Capitol to help create policies that ensure women's economic security. And I'm here today to talk about recovery, recovery from this pandemic that we're still in.
1: <laughs> I, I just, I genuinely appreciate your energy Um and every time I'm just going to say this for our listeners, Janae and I are good friends have, have uh, been so for maybe the last five years, at least I'm thinking 2017 is probably when I met you. And even then, you were sort of grappling with the idea, with, with sort of these ideas. Um, you know, what does it mean to be a leader in an organization in a, quote, unquote, post-racial society, right? And what does it mean to be recovering from some of those things? And John and I have had a great deal of conversation about recovery, the word, the etymology, the meaning, how it materializes and manifests in different ways. Um, fields of work, different industries, and right now in the pandemic, what are what are some of the ways that you're seeing the idea of recovery impact your work and, and influence it even?
7: That's a really great question because you can think about this really at the surface level. What does it take to recover from the challenges and consequences of the pandemic itself, all of the things that happened during the pandemic or because of the pandemic, Or what does it mean to think about recovery in the context of recovering from the generations of harm due to gender injustice and racial injustice that were created long before the pandemic happened, but that had consequences that were exacerbated and heightened during the pandemic, particularly around income disparity and wealth disparity? So are we talking about just recovery from the last three or so years, or are we talking about recovery from well, the entirety of American history. <laughs> to me, that's a big question that we have to grapple with.
0: So if you have a whole group of people in the state and in the country who have historically been underrepresented in government, underrepresented in any number of ways, and has had a essentially a society built to keep them from having everything that other people have, forever. And then you have a couple year period where it's really shitty for everyone. I'm going to guess that there's a whole lot of people who think, oh my goodness, we really have to recover. We really have to recover from what's just happened to us over the course of the last two years. And you're doing work every day. That's advocating for people who are like, yeah, see what it's like. It's it's pretty terrible when everything doesn't go your way.
7: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it's terrible for everyone, but for folks for whom it was terrible before, things have now reached dire straits, consequences, Uh, you know, over the last few years. There were families who considered themselves to be solid, solidly middle class, but they've lost wages. Perhaps they've lost some of their savings. Now they're not able to go on their annual family vacation, or maybe they need to cut back a little bit on on the treats for their family. Whereas when we're talking about people who have been living with generational poverty, we're talking about folks who are being evicted from their homes, we are talking about people who can't afford to put gas in their car to go to their essential worker jobs where they're paid not even a livable wage. We're talking about the folks for whom, you know, a small blip <laughs> is is not just a small blip. It's, it's a catastrophe that opens up that has not just an impact on how they or how their family will do economically over the next few weeks or the months, but it could have – a generational impact moving forward.
1: I guess what I'm interested in is, you know, as we are paving a path towards recovery, towards the end of the road where there's a, you know, a, a, a finish line marker that says, and yeah, you are, you've arrived at recovery, right? But we know that that's not going to be the case or at the very least, we know that the it'll still be a race. It's not going to be the single file line where in turn, everyone is restored back to, or I'll say made whole. It's going to be a race between those less fortunate and those who actually might get esc- escorted straight to the finish line.
7: There's so much we could unpack there. First, I I, I want to push back a little bit against this notion of, of a race because I think that's one of the ways in which... White supremacy has brainwashed all of us. We think everything's a race. Everything is a competition. We actually live in a state full of abundance. We live in one of the richest, if not the richest states in the richest country in the history of the world. We have plenty for everyone here. Uh, We really need to shift this narrative that Connecticut is broke and that we don't have enough for everyone. We have enough for everyone. We just need to prioritize differently how we choose to spend our our dollars collectively. So I don't necessarily believe that we're in a race. And I also like to think, and this harkens back to... My, my activist work, that we shouldn't be aiming necessarily for folks to make it to the finish line for recovery, but we should be aiming for folks to make it over that hill so that now we're all in the beloved community together, the way that Dr. Martin Luther King envisioned for us. And I think that when you stop thinking about the ways in which we move forward as a competition and we start thinking about it in terms of abundance— It starts to shift your perspective on what you think could be possible and who should benefit from that.
0: Mm. I want to talk, though, about this idea of abundance. Clearly, we have abundance here in Connecticut and in the country, more than enough to go around, but yet somehow or other, we have this systemic inequality. The messaging, though, of this, Janae and Mercy, is, I think, so important. In Connecticut specifically, when you talk about needing to get resources to people who don't have them currently. No one ever thinks about it in terms of abundance. And if they do, they think, well, yeah, it's abundant. And you're going to have to take from me to give to them.
1: (laughs) I mean, and John, even to that, when we say abundance, what we're invoking is the idea of scarcity mindset, right? Mm -hmm. And when we operate with the sense of like, well, we only have, and I'll just, I won't talk about all of Connecticut's money. I'll only talk about the $2 billion surplus, right? (laughs) Well, we only have $2 billion, right? And in some ways that is scarce, right? So I think, John, your point is well taken that we, see a pot of money and we say, all right, well, it's limited. $2 billion being quite literally for me, the definition of double infinity, right? That's (laughs) For me, that's what that basically (laughs) means. But we approach these things like it's limited. And because it's limited and we can't do everything for everyone, we have to decide who we're going to do anything for.
7: Yeah, exactly. And part of that conversation as well is also about shifting this notion that paying your fair share is somehow a burden. We need to really think about what does it mean when we put together budgets that determine how we run our schools, how we run our communities, budgets are moral documents. What we choose to invest in collectively shows where our values as a community lie. And that's one of the rebrands I think we need to have around taxation. Taxes are not a punishment. Taxes represent the level of investment that we are willing to make as individuals into our communities so that we all are cared for, so that we all are educated, so that we all can be healthy, so that we can all survive and have basic needs. Over the last several decades, this conversation around taxes has has shifted so much so that you hear it across both sides of the aisle. Everybody says, well, nobody likes to be taxed. Well, but we all like, to live in communities that have good schools that have public safety. We all like to have enough food in our refrigerators. We all like to be able to see a doctor when we need care
1: or even on a daily and weekly basis for people who might not have kids, right? We all like our trash being picked up. We sure
7: do. We like our roads to not have potholes in them. We like
1: our snow being plowed. Right? We we love to indulge in these in these common you know public goods without giving buying into them, so to speak.
0: But, yes. but we're very quick, and this is, I mean, you can chart this by the number of <clears throat> letters to the editor that come into the old Hartford Current saying, I lived here for 40 years and I put my kids through public schools and it was great. And now that I don't have kids anymore, it's too damned expensive and I'm going to move to Florida. At the end of the day, this is money that we all share in all the resources of and whether or not we have kids in the local high school system doesn't really matter anymore but again it's really hard to reframe that in terms of the way people think about it in the state
1: and now john what you're getting to and Janae, i would love to hear what you think about this is really this idea that had to be challenged that was forced to be challenged during the pandemic we're all in this together. we have to be committed to each other, right one you know one person's health affects everyone else's. one person's decision affects everyone else's, but we didn't quite have smooth sailing when it came to that 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 then makes me
7: wonder, do we always take it back to the individual because not just within our state but within our country, it has always been about individuality. It has been about your own well, that's individual. What Exactly. Meritocracy. And we've never really fully developed this sense of community, collective, what it means to be working toward a a common goal. I I like what you said, John, about, you know, these things that we all say we like in our our communities are, are common goods. We don't really seem to have that sense anymore. And I think as we become even more diverse, we become even more fractured along along these lines uh, and there's a lot of fear around that uh, people are scrabbling for what they've got for themselves because they're afraid that if they don't grab as much as they can for themselves they won't have enough for them and theirs and it doesn't matter if other people have nothing at all as long as you are taken care of and that's an inherent selfishness i think that is really ingrained into american culture
0: the, there are a thing there are a lot of things though coming out of this pandemic that you know, we might be able to learn from, including the fact that while certain segments of the population clearly took a greater hit than others, everyone did feel some pain. I mean, looking at this, looking at this report that our friends at Data Haven did with with uh, each Connecticut town and how they experienced the pandemic throughout last year, it's it's striking to see that, of course urban core towns, as they're called, had a much higher rate of people losing jobs, using food banks, being worse off financially. But what I find kind of fascinating is that the numbers aren't that great for suburban residents either. I mean, everyone really did feel something. If there's ever a time to develop develop some empathy and develop a sense that we are all in this together, it would be at a time at which, you know, 20% of wealthy suburban towns are also using food banks.
7: I don't disagree with that. And first, sometimes I think we're talking in code when we say urban centers. We should be, you know, real about who, who lives in these places. It's a lot of people of color and a lot of people who are working class and folks who live in poverty. You know, those are the, the people that we're referring to when we say urban centers. And yes, the pandemic has been very hard. Uh, I know that in, in the town, I, I live in West Hartford, and I know that the, the food bank there really worked hard over the last couple of years to make sure that that people got enough to eat. I do hope that we can really start to have a shift among folks who perhaps didn't struggle before but have struggled now, and now they know what that feels like. And even in their struggle, they still understand that there are people who have it far off worse. So what are we going to do to create some changes around that?
1: I mean, this brings me back to the conversation about rhetoric and narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I think about policies, without a lens towards equity, we're going to be getting to a place where, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. If you have a boat. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's another narrative. And I just don't see that being the case post-pandemic. I actually think that what will end up happening is some folks will be shipwrecked. And some folks will drown. And then some folks w- will be able to, you know, sail away on their 75-foot yacht. I have no idea what the size of boats are. Let me just say <laughs> that. I don't know if 75 feet is big or not. That, that seems, well, it's still, that, it's, it's a, still a yacht. It's still a yacht. It's, it's, a, still yacht, a, yacht. <laughs> it's a yacht,
7: It's a yacht. A yacht of any size It's still a yacht.
0: You did use a, a term before Mercy, which I, I, I think is interesting. And it, it is another way that we think about the overall resources we have is, is you said, um, we want to make people whole, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And it gets to, Well, I think one of the the big narratives around this pandemic is when we talk about recovery, depending on where you started, you can be recovering to a very different place. Mm-hmm. And if we are making people whole, in whatever that means, then we have to really think about where where it was they they started.
7: The challenge still remains that so many of our essential workers who are predominantly women, people of color, are working in low-wage or hourly jobs that are not valued in a in a high economic way by our society. So even bringing them back to whole, right, this notion of restitution, right, it, it still doesn't leave them in a place where there's a lot of opportunity for the future to continue to build upon their income or to build generational wealth. And if we want to talk about restitution, we need to talk about what was taken from whom and by whom and for what purpose. And again, everybody always says, Jay, why do you always bring up racism and white supremacy? I say, well, because (laughs) racism and white supremacy are as American as apple pie. So that's what it comes back to. So if we're going to talk about restitution and making people whole, and really talking about what policies need to be on the table, we need to start thinking about what are we doing to correct the theft of wealth from
1: communities of color. I don't like playing devil's advocate. I don't think the devil needs an advocate, but I I do think what we should do here is is uh, preemptively attack some of the counter narratives mm-hmm. that folks will have to what you just said, right? I think about you know my my in laws are a you know Montana sort of Colorado Wyoming corn fed family that would easily tell you this the ills of our fathers are not ours to inherit. And so why should we be paying for, you know, um, the repair needed um, to see the descendants of slaves and the descendants of massacred uh, Native reservations whole? Why should we pay for that repair? White folks alive now.
7: No, I know you didn't enslave anyone. You didn't. (laughs) forcibly steal anyone's land. However, you do still reap the benefits of the outcomes of those actions. You reap the benefits of your great-grandfather being able to buy a home through the GI Bill. You reap the benefits of walking into a job interview and knowing that you will be taken seriously instead of not even being able to make it to the job interview because some recruiter saw an ethnic-sounding name and threw your resume into the trash. There are myriad benefits that you still get to enjoy, regardless of whether or not you, as an individual, actively choose to be racist.
0: So we've done this to a limited extent over the course of the last couple of years, right? We had guaranteed payments to people just to get through the pandemic, if you'd lost your job, you were able to get unemployment to cover your basic living needs that was extended far beyond what some people thought was ever possible in American society. Seems like it worked, kind of. It kept people afloat.
7: Well, the number one thing that helps people who need money is to give them money. Right now, we are in the process of researching guaranteed basic income. We are very curious about what would happen if we were to provide a guaranteed stream of income to individuals who are financially vulnerable, to people who are struggling. People receive on a regular basis a no-strings-attached payment from the government. They can use this payment to cover their basic needs, to pay their bills, to put a little bit aside for savings. We're very curious to know what happens when you provide that kind of financial cushion for people who have been economically vulnerable. How do their lives change and how do the communities around them change?
0: So walk me through what exactly that would look like. I mean, let's be specific here. Who gets the money and how much?
7: All good questions. So let's look at a concrete example. In Stockton, California, they had the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration Project that was launched in 2019, where the city of Stockton provided $500 monthly to 125 participants for 24 months. There were no... uh, work requirements. Uh, People simply had to meet the threshold of having an income that was at or below the median income for the community, which was around $43,000. What they found after providing this guaranteed basic income to folks was that people experienced less income volatility, which meant that these payments helped their income stay steady from month to month. People used this money to pay their bills, which was great for the local economy because people who are struggling are not taking $500 payments and going on cruises to the Bahamas or jet setting off to Europe. They are covering past due bills. They're putting food on their table. They are going out into their local community and spending money at the gas station on the corner, or they are paying a a babysitter who lives in their community. Another tremendous outcome of this demonstration was that people reported much lower levels of stress. So their physical and mental well-being were also positively impacted.
0: Boy, whenever we talk in America about giving people money for anything, there's a huge sector of the population that recoils at the idea that somebody might spend it on, I don't know, ice cream cones for the kids or a nice night out. And the fact is is that both of those things also put money into the local economy. They do. And they also substantively help with the quality of life of the people who are spending that money. Like That, Janae, is, I think, a really important piece of this.
7: I I agree with you. We seem to have this narrative that poor people or working class people should live miserable lives without any sense of joy or comfort. That is fundamentally cruel and fundamentally unfair. I know I, I grew up in poverty, and the occasional treat outside of the house like a Popsicle from the ice cream truck was a huge deal. It really made my whole day – it really made my mom happy that she was able to provide something like that for us. We really need to shift this idea. And, and it really is, I think, tied to this notion that people are poor because they choose to be poor or because they don't work hard enough. And if you don't work hard enough, then why should you have nice things? And we know from the data that's not true. Poor people work very hard. Poor people often work multiple jobs to make ends meet.
0: Yeah. Is is there a way to quantify this and say, no, this is really good for people. It's not just a touchy-feely giveaway for people. Like, this actually helps the whole state, not just these people.
7: I would ask if the better question isn't why do we need to quantify it in terms of What's better for the state economically? As human beings, shouldn't we want other human beings to be happy and healthy? 100%. Simply to be happy and healthy? Why do we always have to take 100%, everything
0: but you and I both back down work in the to state? a bottom
7: line where it's all about profit and dollars <laughs> and money? Totally,
0: totally. <laughs> but you and I both work in the state, and when you go, whether it's not you talk to corporations in the greater Hartford area, you talk to people at the state capitol, that is the language for better or worse yes, I that the people who make decisions at the it's state true. level it's true. always use. It is true. I don't love it either, but what do we, you know? So you know we know can take saying?
7: it let's take it back to then to, to a, a practical conversation. Happier healthier workers don't miss work which means that you have less worker turno- turnover. You have uh, less, less costs in training new workers. Uh, if you are running insurance programs, your insurance costs might go down. If you have happier, healthier workers, you have more productivity because people are not angry or tired <laughs> while they're at work. <laughs> they're going to do more. They're going to want to stay employed by you. These all have great, tremendous financial outcomes, which, of course, to me, are the added benefit to the primary benefit of human beings being able to be healthy, happy, and whole.
0: And that should be a good, just a good enough outcome for us.
7: It should be, it's not yet, but hopefully we'll get there.
0: Jidney, thanks for, for joining us and for the work that you do. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. This is Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. You can go to ctmirror.org slash untold for bonus content and photos from this episode. Look us up on social, drop us an email, don't forget to send us your Untold stories and tell us what is going on in your community. And if you liked what you heard, go ahead and leave us a review and
1: share this episode with a friend who would love it too.
0: Our reporter for this episode was Ryan Martins.
1: Our music is composed and produced by Mark Lyon.
0: Graphics design for Untold is by Jordana Hertz.
1: Our intern is Grace McFadden.
0: We've got digital support from Kyle Constable.
1: Untold is produced and
0: edited by Harriet Jones. Thanks to the Connecticut Mirrors executive editor, Elizabeth Hamilton, and publisher, Bruce Potterman.